Mark Cuban. How you do anything is how you do everything. If you're not, if you don't pay attention to detail on the little things, you're not going to be in the habit of paying attention to detail for the big things. Ken Griffey Jr. Hey, he wears his hat backwards. Well, where my hat backwards because my dad had a fro and I wanted to wear his hat. And if I put his hat on at age six and, you know, he's got a eight and a half and I got like a little five, it's not going to really stay on my head. Jeannie Buss. Thank you for having me. What a nice turnout. It's good to see everybody. John Smoltz. Is if you don't have the imagination and the willingness to fail or not being afraid to fail, I don't think you can be truly great. Candace Parker. I have had so much hope for this generation coming up that I've grown up with women in sports, in leadership roles, on television, speaking about sports, speaking knowledgeably about sports. Paul Gasol. To me, all the work that I've done, all the humanitarian work that I've done has always given me great perspective, has allowed me to keep my feet on the ground and uh, has really put and reminded me what's truly important. Damian Lillard. That was for Seattle. (laughs) (laughs) Just to name a few. Welcome to Sports Business Radio. Now, here's Brian Berger. Well, thanks for joining us on this edition of Sports Business Radio, powered by Molka Sports. You can find out more about them at malkasports.com. I love when we have the icons on Sports Business Radio. We've got one of them this week. Bob Costas, 29-time Emmy Award winner, Hall of Fame broadcaster. He is the host of the new Back on the Record with Bob Costas on HBO. It debuts on HBO and HBO Max on July 30th. He is going to join me. You're going to love this conversation. He looks back on his career. He talks about his new show and previews that for us. Should the Olympics be taking place? Remember, Bob Costas has sat in the big chair at NBC for every Olympic game since 1988. This is the first time he's not sitting in that seat. He'll tell you why. And he also tells us what he still wants to do in broadcasting. He's pretty much done it all, but there's a few things that he'd still like to do. And he's got some great stories to share. So that's ahead on this edition of Sports Business Radio. Bob Costas, I think you're going to love it. Brian Griggs joins me. Griggs, uh, love this conversation. Man, I mean, he is an icon. I mean, 29 Emmys is just incredible for a broadcaster and the stuff he's done. I love that he still has a bucket list of things he wants to do. Such a great conversation. So many great stories. Great guest and a good get and a wonderful interview. For my money, one of the best calls in NBA history is Costas's call on NBC of Michael Jordan's game-winning shot, championship-winning shot in 1988 against the Utah Jazz. It was just money. Uh, I love when broadcasters know when to lay out and let the scene speak for itself. Uh, you know, he's a masterful baseball broadcaster. He's done such a great job calling the biggest events. So if you're a journalist student or you are a current journalist, this is a master class in how to interview people, in how to call play by play, and really how to conduct yourself as a broadcaster. Bob Costas, Hall of Famer. He's coming up next. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Brian Berger here. We've collaborated with our friends at Parish Project to create high-quality sports business radio clothing, including hoodies, long-sleeve T-shirts, and short-sleeve T-shirts. Each item comes in five different colors and a variety of sizes. These items are super comfortable, and you can wear them on Zoom calls, while working out, or when you're lounging around the house. 
Sports Business Radio has loyal listeners around the world. We'd love for you to post a picture rocking your Sports Business Radio gear. Tag us on Instagram or Twitter if you post. Get your official Sports Business Radio gear by going online to parishproject.com. That's parishproject.com. P-A-R-I-S-H project.com. My guest is Bob Costas, 29-time Emmy Award winner, the only broadcaster to receive Emmys in the news, sports, and entertainment categories. He's returning to HBO for Back on the Record with Bob Costas. It debuts on Friday, July 30th at 11 p.m. The series will debut on HBO, and it'll be available on stream on HBO Max as well. Costas's distinguished career includes having served as primetime host for a record 11 Olympic Games on NBC, host and play-by-play voice of numerous World Series and NBA Finals. He's also uh, hosted numerous Super Bowl broadcasts, U.S. Open Golf Championship, Triple Crown races, and more. Bob, thanks for joining me on Sports Business Radio. How are you? Thanks, Brian. I'm well. Hope you are, too. Yeah, I am. Uh, What compelled you to want to return to HBO where you won seven Sports Emmy Awards and host Back on the Record with Bob Costas? Well, because HBO is synonymous with with quality in everything they do. And that's certainly true uh, of its sports programming. And I very much enjoyed being there in the past. And in 2009, when the Major League Baseball Network came into existence, they came to me uh, and wanted me to be part of the network. And I love baseball, so I wanted to return to it. NBC hasn't had baseball since 2000, and there was no prospect of them getting baseball. At that time, the cable landscape was different. And the people at HBO said, we want you to stay. Here's a new contract. Just sign it. But we have to have cable exclusivity. So I had to choose between two things I really love, to do the kind of sports journalism and commentary and long-form interviews that HBO not only allows for, but that they prize, or have a chance to go to the Major League Baseball Network. Difficult choice. I went to MLBN. Happy to have been there now for more than a decade. I think in their niche, when you look at MLBN against the other single sports networks, they're all good, but MLBN, factor my own bias out, is the best of them. They're just terrific. So I'm happy to be with them, but it meant I had to leave HBO. But now the cable landscape has changed, and they came back to me and said, would you like to return and do some of the kind of stuff you used to do? The baseball network is fine with it, Uh, But I said, you know, I'm kind of in a transitional period. I still want to do the things I enjoy and that are kind of closer to the bullseye for my sensibility and whatever my abilities might be. But I don't want to do as much of it as I used to do. Uh, So they said, how about not weekly? No, not weekly. How about monthly? Eh, How about quarterly? That's what I said. How about quarterly? (laughs) And we'll make them as good as we can and we'll do four of them a year. And they agreed to that. But then this year... Uh, COVID kept forcing us to push things back. So now we're going to get all four for 2021 in in four consecutive months, July through October. And then next year, we expect that it'll uh, hit its quarterly stride. So walk us through the format of the show and, and some of the topics that we might hear. And you always get the biggest names to sit down with you. So who might we see? Well, Charles Barkley will be on the first show. Never know what he might say. <laughs> Perfect combination of provocative comments and just wildly entertaining stuff. Uh, the name of the show, Brian, t- 
tells you what it's going to be. The name of the show is Back on the Record with Bob Costas. From 2001 to 2009, it was on the record with Bob Costas, at least most of the time. They changed it to Costas now for whatever reasons a couple of years before the end of that run. But it was on the record with Bob Costas. So we're not reinventing the wheel. We're going back to do some of essentially the same things. Uh, There will be commentaries by me, uh, as there were in the past, uh, some commentary or essay to end the show. There'll be panel discussions, and there will also be long-form interviews with people who are either newsmakers or have a significant and interesting point of view. Um, As I hope I always have, I'm looking for light rather than heat, Um, and we hope that the show is a combination of insight rather than just hotshot, shoot-from-the-hip stuff, insight um, from varying perspectives, uh, and also, at the same time, it's got to be entertaining. It's a television show. You know, it's not a lecture at Harvard. It's a television show. I'm so interested in your process. We talk about that a lot on this show. When you're sitting down to interview someone, can you walk us through a little bit of what your process looks like? Well, it depends on who it is and what the likely subject matter is. Uh, I've interviewed a lot of people outside sports in my career. So if it's something where there's an obvious journalistic issue, um, if you're interviewing the commissioner of any of the sports or someone who uh, is in the news for a specific reason, then you've got to have all your research on that buttoned up. You have to have an idea of the questions you're going to ask, but you have to be prepared to go in a different direction If answer number three is surprising and demands a follow-up or clarification, you can't just be locked into automatically now asking question number four. Um, That's if it's kind of a newsmaker thing. But if it's more biographical, then you want to just lead the person, we hope, to telling stories on their own. And And he or she delivers some of that, and all you're kind of doing is leading them in that direction, and then they take it and and run with it. I've done so many different types of interviews, Brian, that it's difficult to say that there's any one approach. Interviewing Jerry Sandusky in the wake of the allegations that had such an impact on so many lives and on the Penn State football program is entirely different than sitting down with Smokey Robinson or Bruce Springsteen and talking about their musical careers. But I I hope I have enough range to be able to do what's appropriate in each of those circumstances. No, I think you do. Uh, Is there someone that you've interviewed that stood out? I mean, I get asked this question. I've been hosting the show for 17 years, and that pales in comparison to all the people you've interviewed. Is there an interview that you did that stood out, whether because it just exceeded your expectations or because it was someone that you would always wanted to speak with? I'm not going to cite this person now, Brian, because my interview with him was the best, although I know it was a good one, but I'm thinking more of the personal impact it had on me. Paul McCartney Hmm. came on my show later, which was not a sports show. We occasionally had sports guests, but 95% of it was not sports. Uh, I think it was 1991. And at that time, Paul McCartney had not done a U.S. television interview in a decade. Wow. Now things have changed so much. There's so many platforms and so many kind of infotainment shows uh, that usually come on after the network news, Inside Edition, Access Hollywood, whatever it might be, Entertainment Tonight. Uh, so 
even the biggest names are more accessible, it seems, now than they were then. But this is what happened with the later show, uh, which for those who don't recall or are too young to remember, uh, used to come on right after David Letterman on NBC, 1.30 Eastern and Pacific, 12.30 Central Time. Um, and it was a half-hour show without a studio audience, so if you heard laughter, it was legitimately earned laughter that came from the <laughs> stage manager or the cameras right. or the cameraman or, or whatever. Uh, and it was a single guest show. And so Paul McCartney, um, who was familiar with the program and, and liked it and thought that he would want to do it, Paul came on the show. We taped for about an hour, uh, a half-hour television show minus hello, goodbye, and the commercials is right around 22 minutes. So we taped for about an hour. We used every second of it and made it three consecutive shows on three consecutive nights uh, during the next week. And all I'm thinking as I'm sitting there, it was 1991, so I'm 39 years old. Uh, I knew the Beatles and Paul McCartney's body of work pretty well. I, I did all the necessary research to supplement that or remind me about certain things. Uh, so it wasn't a case of being uh, intimidated by what was required. But I was awestruck because all I could think of was, I wonder if anyone I went to grade school with or high school with is watching this, and I'm thinking of myself, age 11, in front of a black and white TV with my parents and my sister in the living room, watching Paul McCartney and the Beatles, in essence, debut on American television on The Ed Sullivan Show in 1964. Uh, so luckily, he was so forthcoming and such a really nice guy that after the second or third question, it wasn't so much an interview as it was an ongoing conversation. And now with YouTube, a lot of these things are, are showing up, and I'll hear from people uh, who either are seeing it for a second time or never saw it at all, whether it's that or any one of dozens or of other interviews that I did on that program. Um, and the fact that a lot of them hold up as well as they do three decades later is, is gratifying. Yeah, that's amazing. I want to talk to you about the future of radio. I know that you grew up listening to radio. You listened to Red Barber, Mel Allen, Russ Hodges called Baseball Games. Uh, in your family's driveway is what I've heard. And I'm seeing listenership for radio decline. I'm seeing growth of podcasting. Like you said, there's so many other platforms now. What's the future of radio, Bob? I, I wish I was prescient enough to know, but it's lost its position of primacy. Even after television had established itself uh, in a fulsome way, Radio in many markets remained very important, and it still is important, but we can't say that it holds the same place as it used to. But radio done well is still something that many of us deeply appreciate. And when it comes to sports, play-by-play -play of a game on radio, if it's done right, is pretty close to an art form. A lot of young broadcasters, understandably, have come up basically listening or watching television. And if they think of sports radio, it's sports talk radio. So you have fewer and fewer, there are still some and I admire them, but fewer who understand the essential difference between radio, whereas Vin Scully once put it, they give you a blank canvas, a bucket of paint, and a brush. 
And at the end of nine innings, you painted what you hoped is both a pleasing and accurate picture with not just the broad strokes, but the little accents and shadings. Whereas on television, by and large, what you're doing, apart from having a conversation with the other person in the booth, is you're putting captions beneath a picture that already exists. They're both important skills, but they're not the same skill. You're doing a basketball game on television, you don't have to describe every pass or every dribble, but the best basketball announcers made you able to see exactly where everyone was, to feel the pace and the rhythm of it because they were in sync with it. When I listen to a baseball game on the radio now, again, there are exceptions, but too often the announcer acts as if everybody is watching this on television or soon will be after they get out of the car. Hmm. Every, every radio announcer, let's, let's say we're just talking about baseball, you have a monitor in the booth. Of course you do. There'll be replays. You need to look at them. Maybe there's a replay review. Um, the center field camera's helpful in identifying pitches. But what you almost never hear is a play-by-play guy on the radio in baseball describe the distinctiveness of a batter's stance or the peculiarities of a guy's wind-up or the colors of the uniform, or whatever it might be, all the things that fill in the big picture. And I feel even today, even in the 21st century, on the radio, you should act as if television almost doesn't exist. Act as if you're broadcasting for a blind man. And in fact, a genius blind man, Ray Charles, told me once in an interview, out of nowhere, he said, Bob, you know who I'd like to meet? And I'm thinking, you're Ray Charles. You probably have met or could meet anybody you want. Who? And he said, Vin Scully. Huh. That I love baseball, but you have to understand, Bob, the picture doesn't mean anything to me. The words mean everything. And Vin Scully's broadcasts are almost musical. Could you introduce me to Vin Scully? I said, Ray, I could arrange that. And a year or so later, Ray Charles came to Dodger Stadium. I introduced him to Vin Scully. Ray was over the moon. Vin, of course, was appreciative of who Ray Charles was. But Ray Charles was like, like a kid in a candy store. Wow, Vin Scully, the sound of his voice transports me. And that's what radio at its best can be. The theater of the mind, the, the, the engaging of the imagination. That's radio at its best. That is such a great story. I love that story. And I'm a West Coast guy, so I grew up listening to Vin as well. And, and you know, I'm not sure there's anyone better for as long as, as he did it. He is uh, just a maestro when it comes to painting a picture. Yep. So you called so many amazing games. I asked you about your process when you're sitting down for an interview. I'm really curious about your process when you were preparing to call a game. What did that look like? Well, you got to have the particulars. Who's injured? Uh, what's happening in the starting rotation? If we're talking about baseball, who's pitching tonight's game? Who are the likely starters tomorrow? You have to have all those particulars. But you also bring to the booth, one hopes, all your baseball knowledge and experience. And you don't know for sure what's going to apply in this particular game. What you have in your actual preparation and what you have somewhere in the back of your head is 5 10% of that is what's going to be used. But you don't know for sure, other than the obvious particulars of the game, you don't know for sure what it is. 
Uh, and you have to have some sense of judgment in the moment. What fits here? What anecdote fits here? What observation fits here? Uh, when should I just back off and let the person uh, in the booth with me uh, take over and assert his point of view? When is the only thing necessary for me to ask a question rather than make a statement? If it's television, when are things dramatic enough that you can almost back off and just let the, the tight shots that the director gets and the reaction of the crowd uh, carry it? it? It's kind of, you know, you called Vince Scully a maestro. It's almost like that. It's almost like a conductor with a symphony orchestra. When, when do we bring this in? When do we bring that in? When are the horns dominant and the string or the strings dominant? When do we take it down a notch? When do we bring it up a notch? It's a feel. Um, and over, over time, not just doing it in the booth, but all the times that I watched and listened to baseball as a kid and even into adulthood, Whatever sense of that you've you've developed, that's that's what you bring to bear. I want to get your thoughts on a few topics of the day. So, as I mentioned earlier, and as everyone knows, you were the primetime host for a record eleven Olympic Games on NBC. They're getting ready to start, and you know, Bob, I've been saying on this show for a while, it's great. I love watching while they happen, but. You know, A, I'm wondering, should these games in Tokyo even be taking place? And then B, you know, I look at the amounts of money that are spent. Sochi spent $55 billion on their Olympics. This is probably going to check in somewhere around $25 billion for Tokyo. And you see the trail of debt that incurs after someone hosts the Olympics. When the Olympics were started, you know, this is way back in ancient Greece when there wasn't international competition and now there's international competition. So I guess I have two questions. Should the Tokyo Olympics be taking place? And then is the Olympics an outdated concept at this point? Well, I think the ideal would be, and I've said this over the last few months when asked, the ideal would be to postpone it another year and to do it in the summer of 2022 when, fingers crossed, we hope Uh, The the variants out there are concerning, but we hope that in the summer of 2022, circumstances would be better. There could be some spectators in attendance. While they'd still have to be vigilant, the concern over the health consequences would be not quite as great. Plus, it would go for one year back to the old model when the winter and summer Olympics used to be in the same year. So it would have some kind of historical coherence. But... The IOC has the final word on all this. And while the IOC is going to take some sort of financial hit from the circumstances of an Olympics held in this summer under these circumstances, it's nothing like the hit that uh, Japan will take and the Tokyo organizers will take. All of the contracts are written in a way that is favorable to the IOC. Uh, And among their considerations... I'm not saying that these considerations should have carried the day, but among their considerations, the World Cup is next summer. And in much of the world, the World Cup is of greater interest than the Olympics. The World Track and Field Championships are also supposed to take place in roughly the same time frame as uh, a further postponed Summer Olympics would take place. And you're not talking about, you know, kayaking or or water polo, with all due, due respect to those sports, without track and field athletes um, 
who are paid or can win prize money uh, outside the Olympics but are not directly compensated for being in the Olympics, that's one of the signature events of the Olympics. Um, and you have contracts that are in place and have already been pushed back for a year. Uh, the Olympic Village is always going to be repurposed for either commercial real estate or private housing. And the arenas and stadiums uh, are already contracted, and they pushed it back a year for concerts and other sports events. So there's potential litigation. There's all sorts of stuff happening. And the IOC, I think, says, let's just do it and get it over with. Is that the right decision? I don't think so. But their jeopardy financially for doing it now is less than the jeopardy uh, to the Tokyo organizers and really less than the jeopardy for NBC because while they will still get very good ratings because it's the Olympics, they'll still win every night of the ratings. The pall that hangs over these Olympics almost certainly will have an impact on the ratings and NBC's ability to, to fully realize uh, what they thought they were getting from their investment. All right, another topic. You are as close to baseball as anyone. Again, your work with the Major League Baseball Network. I'm looking at the upcoming labor issues, and I'm curious your thoughts. Do you think Major League Baseball will have a full 162-game season next season, and will they work out their labor issues? You can never say so with certainty. Baseball has not had uh, a work stoppage since uh, the disastrous 94-95 situation, which cost them the 94 World Series and the end of what was shaping up as an exciting season, plus several games at the beginning of the next season. But Rob Manfred, in his role as the executive counsel, uh, when Bud Selig was the commissioner, Rob Manfred was part of all those subsequent successful negotiations. And what you hope is understood by all parties, take a step back. We have more mutual interest here then we have competing interests. And when the industry overall does well, then all of us in some sense benefit. And post-COVID and with baseball and really all sports with the exception of the King, NFL, struggling to maintain and enhance their position. People's viewing habits have changed. The way they consume sports has changed. Baseball, as much as you and I may love it, uh, has, generally speaking, an older audience trying to capture younger people. The game and the business faces serious questions. And if the Players Association and the owners are going to lose sight of that and send it spiraling back down over relatively smaller issues, the hit that the industry will take is going to be felt by everybody. So, yeah, it's a negotiation. And, yeah, they should have, to a certain extent, adversarial positions. But they have to see their mutual interest. If someone ever came to you in the future and said, Bob, I think you should be the commissioner of Major League Baseball. Is that something that would ever interest you? Because I've always thought you know baseball as well as anyone. You know all the you know, main parties involved. And I just thought you'd make a great commissioner. Is that something that you'd ever be interested in? No, although I'm flattered that you would mention it. Uh, it goes back more than 20 years, I guess during the 90s and the early 2000s, uh, because of a book I wrote about the state of baseball and some of the appearances that, that I made on various programs because the state of baseball was a subject that not just sports people wanted to talk about, but Ted Koppel wanted to talk about it on Nightline, and Charlie Rose wanted to talk about it on PBS, and they wanted to talk about it on Meet the Press. 
et cetera, et cetera. So maybe I was saying things that seemed to make sense to a lot of people. And from there, some of them jumped to the conclusion that I would make a good commissioner of baseball. And I never encouraged that speculation. I always said flatly and truthfully, not only am I not interested, but I am not qualified. Uh, you know, I familiarized myself with the issues, maybe more so than most people did, but I'm not an economist uh, by educational background. And most, of, most importantly, I don't think I have the temperament for all the backroom negotiating and arm twisting uh, <laughs> that has to take place when you're in that position. Plus, I've always had a pretty good job anyway. So it wasn't like I was looking around for an alternative. You've had such an illustrious career. Is there anything, any project or any role out there that you look at and say, gosh, I still want to do that before it's all said and done? You know, Brian, as you said, I've been so lucky and did so many things that I could never even have dreamed of doing when I started out. All I really want to do now is return to the things that are most truthful to me as a person and a professional. That's why returning to HBO on a limited basis uh, with their dedication to quality, with the long-form programming, um, that suits me well. My role at the Baseball Network, historical stuff plus occasional play-by-play of games, that's something that I enjoy. Um, so it isn't that I want to do something new or something I haven't done. I just want to, on a limited basis, concentrate on the things that I most enjoy and that I'm best suited to. But in answer to your question, if there's one thing that I've always wanted to do uh, and haven't done yet, and maybe I could do in my early 70s or whatever it might be, I would love to do a season or a chunk of a season of minor league baseball on the radio for nothing other than the love of the craft and to see if I could do it as well as I'd like to think I'd be able to do it. To do even for a short period of time what those voices in the night that I used to listen to as a kid, you mentioned in my parents' driveway. You know, yeah, we had a radio in the house on Long Island, and we could pick up the local games, the Yankees, the Mets, the Rangers, the Knicks, whatever. But I love baseball so much. Plus, my father was a gambler, and he wanted to follow his, his bets. <laughs> and there was no sports phone then. There was no Internet then. There was no ESPN then. If he bet on the Tigers against the Indians, then I would go out in the car and fiddle with the dial and try to pull in 3WE from Cleveland and Jimmy Dudley or WJR uh, from Detroit and Ernie Harwell. Same thing, KDKA in Pittsburgh, Bob Prince, um, KMOX in St. Louis, which – came in occasionally from 800 miles away on a clear night, Jack Buck and Harry Carey. And I thought, wow, not only am I a baseball fan, and not only am I going to tell my dad what the score is, fingers crossed that his bet was winning rather than losing, <laughs> but this, this is so cool. This seems romantic to me, to be one of those voices in the night. Uh, so if, if only to a small audience in some nice minor league city, Chattanooga, Greenville, Spokane, Toledo, someplace like that for a season. I would just love doing it for its own sake. God, those would be some lucky fans to be able to hear you uh, <laughs> call their minor league baseball team. Let's end with this. Uh, as we've discussed several times in this conversation, the broadcasting and streaming and just journalistic landscape has changed so much, especially since you first broke on the scene yeah. many years ago. Advice to up-and-coming broadcasters who are trying to make their way in the world, and it's such a, you know, I remember when I was starting out, I was sending cassette tapes out to people. You know, now yes. you can 
voice something and send a link to someone and email it to them. So it's very different. What is your best advice for up-and-coming broadcasters? Well, you take advantage, as you just said, Brian, take advantage of the new technology and all the new platforms that are out there. But I think that there are some things that are timeless, even as the world changes. A dedication to quality, a dedication to craftsmanship, a dedication to fairness and accuracy. Those things should be, even if too often, regrettably, they aren't, they should be the important hallmarks of a good broadcaster in 2021, just as they were in 1951 or 1961. You have access to more information now, so in a certain sense, you can be better informed, but the nuts and bolts of what makes a good and enjoyable broadcast remain more or less the same. So what I've always told young people is get as good and well-rounded an education as you can. Don't just confine yourself, if you're interested in sports, to that. That might be your primary interest. But the better informed you are and the more interesting you are as a person, the broader your frame of reference is, the more engaging and entertaining you will be um, as a broadcaster. And then understand that while it's very important to get all that classroom instruction and to do as much reading as you can on your own, because reading doesn't just inform you, it engages your imagination. And even if you're not Shakespeare, and none of us are, it increases your appreciation of language well used. So it actually makes you, whether you understand it or not, it's happening by osmosis, it makes you a better speaker of the English language the more quality material you, you consume. And then keep this in mind. Broadcasting, no matter what you've learned and how you prepared in the classroom, broadcasting is a knack. And so the first time you sit behind a microphone, you're not going to sound like Vin Scully. You're not going to sound like Al Michaels um, or Jim Nance or Marv Albert back in the day calling a basketball game on the radio. That takes time. So don't be hard on yourself when you listen to the tape for the first time and it sounds nothing like what you hope to sound like. That's something you can only develop by doing it. You can't learn it in the classroom. It's just the reps. Uh, and if you have the talent, and it is a knack, and not everybody has it, you can be very bright and very willing to work hard, and not everybody has that broadcasting knack. But even if you have it, it's going to take some time to develop it. Bob Costas, he's returning to HBO for Back on the Record with Bob Costas. It debuts Friday, July 30th at 11 p.m. It's available on HBO. You can stream it on HBO Max. Bob, I've wanted to talk to you for a long time. I really enjoyed this conversation. You are truly one of the best we've ever seen and heard. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me on Sports Business Radio. Brian, I've really enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. And thanks to our partner, Molka Sports, for powering Sports Business Radio. Learn more about them online at molkasports.com. That's M-A-L-K-A sports.com. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. This and every SBR podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favorite listening app. Follow Sports Business Radio on Facebook, Twitter at SB Radio, Instagram at Sports Business Radio, and online at sportsbusinessradio.com. Sports Business Radio is produced by Brian Griggs and Griggs Productions, griggsproductions.com.